Hello there. Today's episode contains some brief references to ancient fat phobia and extended references to Tertullian being a massive jerk to everyone. If you find either of these topics offensive, today's episode might not be for you. Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. We have a special treat for you on this supplemental episode. As we've been discussing some of the most important and well-studied thinkers in all of Christianity, I would hate for you to have to rely on my exposition of these figures alone. So I have begun what I hope will be the start of a new series in these supplementals, in which I cajole leading scholars from around the world to talk with me about the figures they study. Today's supplemental episode is an interview with myself and Andrew McGowan of Yale Divinity School on Tertullian. I hope you enjoy. My guest today is Dean Andrew McGowan, um, who is the Dean of Berkeley Divinity School at Yale, um, as well as a professor in there. Um, is it fair to say you're still specializing in ancient Christianity and ancient liturgical practices? I, that's absolutely right. I, I do sort of run a, a side business in modern liturgical practices too, so to speak. Yes. I'm now teaching our prayer book students, but but that's right, grounded as it were in my more uh, specialized work on on early Christian liturgy. Granted, of course, that early Christian liturgy was one of the things that informed the way our current prayer book got shaped. So there are some fairly deep connections there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, we've been able to talk about uh, Tertullian a little bit on the podcast as he uh, relates to the development of Trinitarian thought. More broadly, can you give us a sense of who Tertullian was and why he is important for us today? Yeah, so Tertullian is a, a theologian who lived from maybe the mid to late second century through into the earlier part of the third. We don't know his exact dates, but mm -hmm. if you sort of think about the year 200, where we're talking about sort of peak Tertullian, as it were. Mm -hmm. And um, his significance is really that he is one of the theologians from whom we first get a significant corpus of work at all. Um, mm -hmm. Because, you know, it's not that easy to keep documents from the ancient world, but we have, in his case, a few dozen uh, treatises, as we refer to them, which are sort of like longish essays, I guess. Mm -hmm. And um, so he's just sort of early to be a, a figure of substance in Christian theology at all. But perhaps uh, more to the point, he is the, the first real theologian who has come to us writing Latin. And yes. it's, it's interesting because, of course, he's not a Roman, um, at least not um, geographically speaking. He's an African, but his home of Carthage in North Africa, which is sort of in the suburbs of modern Tunis, um, his his sort of provincial home was very much a part of the Roman Empire. And so, curiously enough, at the same time Tertullian is writing extensively in Latin, his Roman contemporaries are tending to write in Greek, which seemed mm -hmm. to be regarded as the the, the language of the literati um, in the ancient Mediterranean, even if you were literally in Rome. So, so he's the first theologian of the Latin church and of the Western church, in a sense. Yes. And I'm curious, you know, what you make of that linguistic division. Of course, there's 
often a number of um, distinctions, sometimes simplistic, that are made between the Latin West, the Greek East, in the Roman Catholic Church. And of course, you can, in, uh, for example, in um, against Praxius, um, Tertullian will be will give you Greek words like uh, monarchia or oikonomia, and say, well, you know, this is this is what the Greeks say, but we we say it this way. What's kind of the significance of him being that spokesperson for those Christians worshiping yeah. and reading in Latin? Yeah, that's it's an interesting question because, uh, as perhaps you were implying, even though people do talk about oh, the Greek East and the Latin West, that's not really quite how things work at mm-hmm. at his stage. It's really more like after the fourth century, perhaps that kind of thing becomes more like a reality. The fact that he's writing in Latin when people even in Rome are writing in Greek, I think, means a couple of things. Um, mm-hmm. Latin um, is is a language of uh, philosophy and culture for the traditional sort of Roman culture. We think of people like Cicero, for instance, who was obviously a, a favourite of his, and and mm-hmm. the earlier Latin literature of historians, philosophers, and other poets. Tertullian is placing himself within that tradition. He's he's a little bit leery of the Greeks, to be honest. Even though he knows mm-hmm. they have their own philosophical traditions, and he's quite indebted to them as well, but. I don't know, I'm not sure what the contemporary analogy would be. It would feel to me a little bit like a 19th century Englishman feeling that people who wrote in French were a little bit effete or something like that. Ah, yeah. You know, there's a kind of rev and kissed or um, anachronistic sort of backward looking. Right, right. To a higher culture. Right. And yet he, he also, as you pointed out, he doesn't fail to sort of note the fact that he's accomplished in, in enough in Greek to be able to read Greek texts. And he knows the New Testament is in Greek. Um, but he, it, perhaps we could also say that, um, and again, this sounds odd because he's in Africa, but but in in his own setting, he was speaking the language that was the more uh, appropriate to his own local mm-hmm. culture and its setting. There's a sense in which, yeah. even though Latin isn't the native language of his people, it's actually the more culturally relevant language. Mm-hmm. So think think of the analogy today of a theologian from Latin America who wants to to say that the use of Spanish language in their in their scholarship is significant because of the part it plays in their own culture. Of course, Spanish is also a colonial language like English, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, just as Greek and Latin are both colonial languages. But depending on where you are in the world, it can make some subtle and important differences which you choose. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you. That's helpful. So as we as we think about sort of Tertullian's role in all of this, um, Tertullian is usually associated with a brand of philosophy we today call Stoicism. One of the interesting things as we make the transition between the third to the fourth centuries is, of course, that Stoicism really starts to die out as a philosophy. We haven't had a lot of time to go into it on the podcast. Can you give us a sense of what Stoic philosophy was and how that shaped Tertullian's um, view of the world and how he thought about God? Yeah, this. I mean, this is a big one, of course, but I, I, I sort of perhaps perhaps I can try a couple of fragments of an answer that might be helpful. One, one that might sort of resonate with some people is that, of course, we still use the language of Stoicism to refer, in in a more popular way, to a kind of philosophical fatalism, as it were. Maybe fatalism is too strong, but you know that view that says, look, the way in which to live a contented life is to accept your lot, you know, and to 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 put up with the things that are given to you, not to avoid suffering, but to ponder it, to reflect upon it. And so I think there's a sense in which Tertullian does participate in that element of the Stoic tradition, which is more about finding the right way to make your way in a flawed world than it is about thinking that you can, um, you know, 
take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing in them, as it were. You know, that, that Stoicism does involve this sort of particular view about how you engage with reality. Um, so that's one aspect of it. But perhaps I think when people talk about Tertullian Stoicism, they're more likely to be thinking about some more technical aspects of his metaphysical understanding about how how stuff works in the world, including how God works in the world. Um, people who think about ancient philosophy without necessarily having had the opportunity to read a lot about it may well jump towards the kind of different assumptions that are associated with Platonism, whereby, you know, matter and everything physical that we have in the world is kind of pretty ordinary second-rate stuff and that anything that's really important has to do with the realm of ideas and the mind. And the Stoics don't quite think this. They actually think that, okay, there are different kinds of entities in the world there are different kinds of materials and substances in the world and it's probably true that the higher forms of substance things are the what the bodies of angels or of spirits or of god of course are made of would be a higher kind of substance than the things that your body or mine are made of which are you know material stuff but when they think about the way in which spirit and matter relate, they don't think of them as things that are held widely apart, you know, that, that either you're material or spiritual, but rather that the spiritual is a kind of quality or character of the world which can suffuse the material. Mm-hmm. Um, some uh, people have used the analogy of the way a sponge contains water, for instance, you know, to think about the way matter and spirit relate in Stoicism. So when Tertullian thinks about things like the Holy Spirit or even about the presence of God, he doesn't mean to say that, you know, that the spiritual reality is something at a great distance from what we know and experience in our own embodied existence. He can actually think of the spiritual as something which suffuses our existence. Yes. He's not quite like some modern theologians who might call themselves panentheists, but he's a little bit like that. You know, the idea that God can be present everywhere in all things, through all things. And there's something about that that I think some contemporary uh, listeners might find appealing. Yes. I mean, is it, you know, when you talk about this difference of, you know, in a way, spirit being sort of a a character of matter or even like a particular kind of matter that can suffuse others, um, almost like air can suffuse, say, like a, a nice um, a nice uh, loaf of bread. Right. Um, that's, but, a, that's a metaphor which is close to both our hearts. Yes, yes. Dean and yeah. I are, are both uh, passionate bakers. So, um, you know, I, I also think about, you know, some, you know, when people think about um, the people who are into ghost hunting, for example, might talk about ghosts, you know, sort of having an ectoplasm or right. some, you know, when people talk about, you um, about entering a higher vibration right it's Mm -hmm. it's not that it's not that the other reality is immaterial so much as it is it's in the material world but in a different manner that's that does that kind of get close to it i i think it does as well in other words it's not that in order to find something of ultimate significance in the world you have to look outside of it but rather that to find something of ultimate significance you might well need uh, eyes, not necessarily literal physical eyes, but mm-hmm. intellectual apparatus that's capable of discerning the truth that exists in things and how to how to approach, how to understand objects, people, and so forth requires a kind of discernment. And I think that sort of takes us back a little bit to that other definition of the Stoic as the person who knows how to live in the world, someone who is discerning, someone who is able to consider the, the circumstances, the environment in which they live physically, politically, and otherwise, and adapt right. themselves to it. Yeah, that sense that one won't be carried along by the current, but will, you know, sort of 
have a sober-minded, clear, rational view of everything that's happening. Yes, there's definitely a kind of intellectualism uh, about it, but an intellectualism that includes, you know, not just overthinking, as it were, but about thinking about what the character of the good life should be and how that life should be one which is adapted to circumstances and and not merely based upon high ideals and and then leading to frustration when they can't be fulfilled but one which is is realistic i, I used fatalistic mm -hmm. early on perhaps realistic would be a better way of thinking about the stoics they're realists yes hmm. yeah as we talk about tertullian's associations of course stoicism is one of them uh the other one that comes to mind is his association with what's sometimes called the new prophecies movement um and what in the podcast we've been referring to is the montanists right um can you tell us a little bit more about them what attracted tertullian do them uh to them and um you know what what kind of influence do they have on his thought particularly about the trinity yeah so the the new prophecy seems to have been a, a movement a kind of you might say to use sort of a, an anachronism consciously a kind of neo-pentecostal movement mm -hmm. that emerged in in what modern turkey uh, some decades prior to tertullian's sort of prime of life mm -hmm. and uh the accounts we have of the new prophecy include a couple of different sort of ideas some of them actually sound pretty weird and wonderful like a kind of apocalypticism that thought that the world was about to come to an end and maybe it would actually the new jerusalem might descend from the heavens right there where the the leaders of the new prophecy montanus and priscilla and maximilla were over over there in in turkey but oh great um, short commute yeah exactly um but uh the things that i think tertullian took them seriously for were not so much th these outlandish things we also of course always have to be mindful about you know, reports of heresies tend to reach for the most spectacular and the most mm -hmm. bizarre things and don't necessarily do them justice. But what Tertullian liked about them was that I think the fact that they were eminently serious. Um, he, he lived at a time when I think the Christian church after, you know, 150 years or whatever it is of existence is starting to look a little blurred around the edges, a little flabby in terms of its ascetic commitments of thinking about what discipleship was and how seriously people should take it. And when he encountered... Uh, adherents of the new prophecy, presumably people who came to visit Carthage, we're not quite sure how, he seems to have found in them people who still were uh, motivated by a kind of authenticity of spiritual vision that seemed to him yeah. to help reveal what the heart of the gospel was. You know, it was, mm -hmm. and, and again, I'm, I think it's not a terrible thing to use 20th, 21st century analogs of things like Pentecostalism, you know, which is so often marked by a kind of authenticity of spirituality and so forth, even if there are other hesitations that people might have so he he thought that they took the message of jesus seriously and that they acted uh -huh. as if they meant it he found himself among people who seemed to him rather lukewarm and in effect he said i'm with these guys uh i i want to live a serious christian life i want to take its moral demands seriously i don't want to accommodate it so that it just becomes you know another kind of religious belief that people tack onto their lives without mm -hmm. accepting that it has real implications for the way they live so for the new prophecy for him was i think really about a kind of moral and practical and doctrinal seriousness about christian faith and mm -hmm. what he thought about some of those slightly weirder things we're not quite sure sure and some of those weirder things you know i think the um often the thing that is most thrown around right is um the idea that um members of the new prophecy are baptizing in the name of the father and the son and montanus you know where the founder of the movement stands in for the holy spirit yeah. um which may which may or may not have some basis in reality but didn't necessarily right. characterize all right right and um, we, you know, we can't be quite sure as to how much of that is true but they may have gone a little bit off the rails in that 
stuff too. But Tertullian doesn't want that sort of stuff. Let's put it that way. He's 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 looking on the bright side as far as their orthodoxy is concerned, for sure. Right. Yeah. Um, so this is Tertullian communicating with a group of Christians based out of what is now modern day Turkey. So we're talking about all the way across the Mediterranean Sea. Is this kind of um, cross-cultural um, dialogue common in the ancient world? I, I think we have reason to think it was. Um, the, the, the Romans had set up pretty good postal and trade routes. And uh, I think that both by land and by sea, there was plenty of traffic coming and going from a place the size of Carthage, even on a a daily basis. I mean, Carthage was one of the three or four great cities of the Mediterranean world. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't quite explain how these folk in the backwoods of Turkey got onto the world stage, but they did because mm-hmm. they also made an impact in Rome. And it may have been that the people that he encountered were sort of an, an indirect version. Again, to use 20th, 21st century analogs, think about how some versions of traditional Eastern religion sort of turned into Western phenomena in the second half of the 20th century, groups like the Hare Krishnas and various other guru-led movements, which brought aspects of traditional uh, Indian religion and spirituality to a sort of Western audience on a mass market basis. Some of them came from the back of beyond. They, of course, had different communications media, which is part of what you're pointing to. But it, it, it is often striking how people in the ancient world could actually communicate very effectively and quickly, perhaps, you know, not with the click of a mouse, but nevertheless with the, with, with the sort of sending sending of a letter. It only takes a, a particular scroll or codex to travel the width of the Mediterranean in the space of a few weeks for an idea to travel. Yeah, which is yet another opportunity to remind our listeners that the road to Nicaea is, in fact, brought to you by roads. The Romans were very, very, very good at their roads. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so uh, talking a little bit more about Tertullian's Trinitarian thought, can you tell us something about the historical context of against Praxius? You know, he's, um, writing against a group of people sometimes called, uh, Sibelians, and then often in modern terms, we'll, we'll refer to them as modalists. What, um, what is it about this particular group that Tertullian thinks is so important to, uh, refute? Yeah, um, so... I think that many people listening will sympathize with the fact that the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity can cause a lot of Christians of, of good faith and good intent to scratch their heads a little bit. You know, how mm-hmm. how do three into one go, you know, and still be one and yet be three and so forth. And and during the course of the second century, especially later in the second century, we start to sort of get an idea of a few different ways this gets thought out. And one of them, and the one that's really at issue in the treatise against praxis, is the idea that the one and the three can be held together conceptually by saying there aren't really three at all. There's just one, and that the one actually takes on different uh, um, avatars. I'm, I'm, I'm really jumping around my religious traditions here, but, mm-hmm. but that yeah. the one the one takes on a different persona depending on the circumstance. So that at the at the creation, uh, God is the Father. In the incarnation, God is the Son. At Pentecost, God is the Spirit. But it's only ever the same God, and the only difference is the way in which God engages in self-presentation it's a marketing strategy rather than a kind of a metaphysical thing to do with the essence of god's being i picture i picture god um you know sort of changing out pairs of those fake glasses nose and mustache combinations (laughs) yes yeah so i mean this idea seems to make a good deal of sense it's easy to conceptualize why is tertullian so mad about it well i think he perhaps we could come at this from two angles one is that he's clearly the recipient and teacher of a faith which says something different, and he's very firm about that difference. So, I mean, I, I don't want to say that that's a sufficient reason 
to to be resistant but he it's not as if he's just waiting around for someone to explain the trinity to him you know he's got an idea and his his idea perhaps this is getting into the second part of the answer i think his idea about the the differences that exist in what we call the Trinity must actually be upheld in order for the Trinity to do what Christians claim it does. He he needs, in other words, for there to be a son who can speak to the Father from the cross or otherwise, who can pray to the Father. He needs uh, a spirit who can be sent by the Son or sent by the Father. He needs the um, the actions of the persons of the Trinity, which are manifest in Scripture, to infer the existence of um, three distinct persons, to use the, the mm-hmm. language that starts to sort of bubble up in writings like his own, yes. uh, where, where he tries to use sort of technical language to say, here's the way to talk about the threeness and here's the way to talk about the oneness. But he doesn't want the oneness to be the only thing that gets said. Otherwise, in effect, he's saying that it's sort of it's dishonesty for the son to call out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me from the cross? Yeah. And it's and it's play acting for Jesus to pray to the Father in the garden to, that the cup be taken away from him. Mm-hmm. So he believes that Jesus is genuinely uh, uh, a member of the Godhead, but that that Godhead must have sufficient differentiation in and of itself, not just for our mm-hmm. our sort of us as an audience, but in in and of God's self, there must be the capacity for relationship to exist, and therefore that those three are not simply, you know passing sort of roles taken by actors on a stage but actually reflect a, a threeness which is inherent in the being of god yes yeah thank you that's helpful you know and as i think there have been kind of generations of seminarians who have read tertullian and the other church fathers particularly as they're you know sort of engaged in these kind of um debates over you know what we now call sort of orthodoxy and heresy um and I, I certainly remember in my class, everybody read Tertullian against Praxius and thought, this guy is really mean. <laughs> yes. um, the, the language is very biting. Um, there's all kinds of insults being tossed. Around. Why did he write like that? You know, is this um, is this just a, up to his personality? Um, what's and, you know, I think a lot of people, particularly coming from the church, reading, you know, somebody who's seen as a, a big authority and seeing him be so um, brutal. Yeah, it's kind of a yeah. bit of a culture shock. It's this. It's it is it is a puzzle, and I I don't think we can just sort of breeze past it too quickly either. I think honestly, he probably did have a somewhat unpleasant personality. If you got on the wrong side mm-hmm. of him, I mean, we probably all know people like that. He, yes. um, we're, but we're, I don't know whether you think it makes it better or worse that he's just super smart. You know, um, when, when people are nasty and smart, it's sort of worse in some ways and better in others, right? At least it's entertaining. Um, but his his um, his the acerbic nature of, of his rhetoric, I think, has to be a, a reflection to some extent of his personality. Also, I guess I would say when it comes to these questions of heresy, a reflection of the depth of feeling that's attached um, because he can write in other on other occasions in you know, milder terms and so forth but he really doesn't want to leave any room for thinking that there's any messing around with these guys yeah. um as, as, a, as a third and weaker sort of addition to the explanation he uh he seems to have a kind of rhetorical training in the roman um tradition which suggests that a sort of flourish and and a kind of uh uh acute form of, of rhetoric was appropriate even though he's 
he's as acute as any Roman rhetorician, I think we know. But and there have been some uh, traditions. He excelled at that part of the of the he, rhetorical. He did. He did. Training. And and some people believe that he was a lawyer. There was actually an, another person, unless this was him, called Tertullian, who was a, a jurist who was quoted in the later Roman Legal Digest. Um, but whether or not that was him doesn't matter. The the point is that he seems to have the same sort of rhetorical training that a legal practitioner does and yeah. there are probably too many of people listening to this who would be able to infer that that actually means sometimes taking no prisoners you know so the court the courtroom could be part of the explanation for how he was inculturated into that sort of approach mm -hmm. yes so uh you have studied Tertullian in some depth you have published articles on him um law having had a very full exposure to Tertullian's uh, rhetorical edge what, in your scholarly opinion, is Tertullian's best insult? Oh, well, um, there's one that, that I have to sort of um, go to, I think, even though this takes a minute to explain. And you know that means that it can't be that much of a great joke. But, you know, it's, <laughs> we're, dealing, we're dealing with Latin. Well, we'll here. see. We've in, got time um, on this podcast. In, in his treatise on, on fasting, which is one of his Montanist era treatises, where, where he's castigating the sort of lukewarm Christians for the fact that they don't take fasting rules very seriously, he tells the story of uh, uh, a lukewarm Christian martyr, which he sort of puts in scare quotes. Latin doesn't have scare quotes, but it's clear that he calls him a so-called martyr yeah. called Christinus, who, you know, he says the torturer barely gave him a tickle and, and he expired, but he was so so full and fat of all the sort of rich delicacies that his supporters had been stuffing him with in the prison, you know, that he was probably not going to survive anyway. And he, um, he compares him to the, the famous... Uh, Roman food writer Apicius. Um, now, Apicius is not a household word now, but if we were to think of someone in the modern world who was a famous gourmand, um, you know, a James Beard, or uh, and I'm thinking here a little bit of of the the nasty aspect of the joke, so forgive me for this, but you know, a Paul Prudhomme, if anyone remembers Paul Prudhomme, mm -hmm. someone who whose uh, you know girth reflected his yes. enjoyment of of food and so forth. Um, Tertullian says something like this, you know. Uh, you guys claim that the Holy Spirit doesn't exist in Montanus, but you seem to think he exists in Epicius, uh, yeah. as in Paul mm. Prudhomme and so forth. So yeah. he's sort of, uh, we could probably recast this a little bit better for the modern era by saying that he imagines that the, the Holy Spirit doesn't inspire Montanus theologians, but he does inspire cookbook authors, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, having read a couple of Diana Henry cookbooks, I, I have to say I'm more sympathetic to that theory than I think Tertullian would like me to be. <laughs> there, there is such a thing as inspiration even in the kitchen, isn't there? Yes, indeed, there is. Um, all right. Well, I've, I've only got one more question for you, and this is where we get into the hard-hitting journalism. Uh, you know, again, Tertullian's sort of main Trinitarian work is against Praxius. Your Twitter handle, um, I think since the foundations of your account were laid, has been at Praxius. Uh, what's the story behind that, behind that handle? Are there hidden Sibelian yeah. leanings that you've been yeah. um, hiding in plain sight all this time? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? In, in fact, not Sibelian leanings, but 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 there's another, there is a backstory to this. Um, no one knows who Praxius was. Um, mm -hmm. There's no record of Praxius anywhere outside of Tertullian's treatise about him. And um, just to sort of go down that rabbit hole again for 30 seconds, Tertullian begins this treatise against Praxius by saying that he was guilty of two crimes, that when he went to Rome, he both nailed up the father and drove out the paraclete. Mm -hmm. um, you sort of pause and say, what is he talking about? It's because Praxius was apparently both 
an enemy of the new prophecy as well as mm-hmm. um, uh, an advocate of the Sabellian view of the, the unity of the three persons of the Trinity. So the idea of nailing up the father was saying that he's depicting the father as the one who was crucified and then performing this sort of second anti-Trinitarian sin of driving out the paraclete. Now, mm-hmm. just to explain that part, um, the, the Montanists as a sort of Pentecostal group, as I mentioned before, yeah. are greatly emphasizing the role of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, in their own lives and, you know, saying that God is active among them as, as the paraclete, which, of course, the Gospel of John refers to as the Holy Spirit. Anyway, but who is Praxius? Um, one scholar, Stuart Hall, suggested that maybe Praxius is a kind of joke name based upon the name of the, the quite famous near contemporary of Tertullian Irenaeus. Now, those are the little Greek, there is a kind of potential play on words here because Irenaeus means the peaceable or calm one and Praxius means the busy one Mm. uh, or a a busybody. Now, whether Irenaeus' published views really line up with those of Praxius, I think is much to be doubted, but but Stuart Hall makes that argument on the basis at least of Tertullian's reading of Irenaeus. Mm -hmm. So my adoption of Praxius as a a handle for Twitter was not based upon Praxius Sibelianism, but upon the joke of the name meaning a busybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, so that's the only sense in which my Praxius sort of relates to Tertullian's that that he would have perhaps thought of both of us as people who had too much time on their hands when it came to what they wrote on Twitter. So <laughs> no sympathy for Sibelius, not too much for Praxius himself, and just a little bit of a nudge towards Tertullian. Yeah. Well, um, there are there are far worse nicknames for the dean of a seminary. So, yeah. Well, uh, Dean McGowan, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you, Ben. It's great to be with you. Uh, best wishes to all your listeners and best wishes for the work of the podcast. This is an Earth and Alter Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.